Hello, and welcome back to yet another episode of Talking Terror, brought to you by the Terrorism and Extremism Research Centre at the University of East London. I'm John Morrison. This podcast was recorded on September 20th, 2017 at 3.20pm GMT. If you want to find out about upcoming podcasts or anything else we do here at the Terrorism and Extremism Research Centre, be sure to check out our website, uel.ac.uk slash TERC. There you can find out information about our MSc in Terrorism and Counterterrorism Studies, our Terrorism and Extremism book series with Ivy Taurus, and so much more. Also, for the most up-to-date information, be sure to follow us on Twitter, at TERCUEL, and tweet at us with the hashtag TalkingTerror. Okay. Time for today's guest. Jim Piazza is a liberal arts professor of political science at the Pennsylvania State University. He is author of over 30 articles on terrorism, counterterrorism, and political violence. His research uses quantitative data-driven approach to examine the political, economic, social, institutional, and religious cultural forces that drive terrorist activity globally. Some topics he has examined in his research include the relationship between poverty, socioeconomic factors, and terrorism, terrorism and political regime type, human rights abuses and terrorism, minorities and terrorism, religion and terrorism, the drug trade and natural resources and terrorism. His work has appeared in a variety of journals, including Journal of Politics, the American Political Science Review, International Organization, the Journal of Conflict Resolution, the Journal of Peace Science, International Studies Quarterly, Comparative Studies, uh, Public Choice in Terrorism and Political Violence. At Penn State, Jim teaches graduate and undergraduate courses on terrorism. Jim, thanks for joining us on the pod today. Thanks, John. Appreciate it. So, as with all of our guests, I start off by asking, how did you get involved in this area of research? It's a good question. Um, I, I was not trained to do terrorism research. I was working on other topics when I was in graduate school. Um, I was not paying attention to terrorism that much. I was not, you know, examining that. Now, I had received some training on the politics of the Islamic world in the Middle East, and that had been an interest of mine. But I, I didn't focus on political violence exclusively, per se, looking at the Middle East. I, I'd written a couple pieces on that, but nothing nothing really that serious. And then 9-11 happened. I just kind—I of, guess I just was sort of, you know, struck by the fact that um, this sort of, hist- this, this historical, you know, game-changing event had occurred. Um, and I kind of just felt that that's what I needed to research on. I felt like I had some of the research skills and background to do a quantitative sort of approach to terrorism. Uh, the literature on terrorism at the time was quite good, but it was not quantitative. It was a lot of really high-quality, deep-dive uh, investigations of particular terrorist campaigns or terrorist movements, um, some theoretical work, discussions on what terrorism was. There's a lot of high-quality stuff, but there was really an, an element missing of the quantitative analysis, sort of like the positivist qualitative analysis. And I thought, you know, I'm, I'm trained to do that. I know how to do that kind of research. And so kind of on a lark, I decided to do one piece on poverty and terrorism. I wanted to examine the political economy of terrorism. And, um, you know, I found it very, I fully expected in doing the analysis that I would find that, you know, poverty was an important driver of terrorism. It seemed reasonable to me, and poverty produces these, horrible grievances and and people that are desperate might lash out with political violence and terrorism if they feel they have no other means of redress and i just i didn't find that at all i was very struck by the fact that that all of that economic 
indicators didn't seem to do a good job of predicting where terrorism occurs and when it occurs. And I published it, and I haven't really stopped since. It's been something that's become more and more engrossing to me as I've researched it. So why do you feel, what do you feel specifically that this type of quantitative, quantitative data-driven analysis uh, can give? Like in, what, what, was it, what, what has it since then given uh, the area of terrorism studies that was absent? Yeah, that's a good, qu- that, that's a good question. Um, first off, I would say that my philosophy is I, I, I'm, I'm not a methodological purist. I don't think, I think that, that scholars and experts that look at terrorism need to use all the tools that are in the, that, that are, that are in the toolbox to understand and explain terrorism. So, you know, in, in pursuing a more quantitative approach, I mean, it's very, very important to convey that that's not the only approach at all. It really needs to be the totality of work. And again, you know, that's why I sort of that I took some some pains to say that a lot of the qualitative work you see in the field is excellent work. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely crucial to understanding where what what terrorism is and what's going to happen, what drives it, what 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 are the implications of terrorism. So I want to be kind of clear about that. Um, I I think what a quantitative approach can can contribute to sort of the family of approaches which are needed to have a better understanding of what terrorism is and 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 why it occurs is that it provides the 30,000 foot off the ground view, right? It's oftentimes a lot of the quality work on terrorism that looks at specific terrorist movements or moments in, 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 in sort of a country where terrorism occurs. They, they're very mired in the immediate, right? And there's not a really good ability to sort of, to sort of suss out a general pattern that might explain terrorism in another context, whereas a lot of times the cross-national quantitative analysis can do that. It can look at that and sort of see, are there common themes and patterns across countries? Um, it's falsifiable. I think that that's good. So, I mean, a lot of the really high-quality work that's qualitative, it's very, very difficult for an objective scholar to come along and take that same information and reproduce your study because that, 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 that's just the nature of a qualitative study. Um, it's observational. With quantitative analysis, I like the fact that someone can come along and catch my mistakes, right, or run it in a different way that can produce a much better and clearer picture. So I think that that's something that it really brings to it. Um, I particularly like the mixed methods approaches where you, you have really, you know, nice examination of a particular case and all the nuances that can never be picked up in a quantitative analysis, sort of married with a quantitative analysis when, and, and they produce the same result. I, mean, I find that to be, to be particularly convincing. And so when you're, when you, when 9-11 happened and you decided I need to, to do a bit, do research on terrorism, that I'm going to use the skill set that I've developed over these past few years and apply it to terrorism, what kind of uh, re- readings were, uh, what kind of research was uh, influencing your way of thinking about terrorism? Then? Really good question. So, um... There had been, in the existing literature, there had been very little looking at economic factors, sociological factors that universally were assumed to be a driver of terrorism, with the exception, with the exception of, of, of the Crenshaw 81 piece. So that's uh, Martha Crenshaw's piece, 1981, I think it's called The Causes of Terrorism. That was the only piece that I found at the time that tried to lay out sort of a, a, a framework that would incorporate the sociological and the economic factors in terms of producing an environment of grievance. Well, I think she says there needs to be a precipitating event. 
in conjunction with that, that produces political violence and terrorism. And she uses the Irish case for that. And um, and I, I, I think that that was, that was kind of the, the most important piece, but a lot hadn't been done on that. There had been some quantitative work on regime type and terrorism, the Eubank and Weinberg and Todd Sandler's work, which had done some rudimentary political anal analysis of whether or not democracies experience more terrorism or more terrorist groups. And those were kind of the larger questions. So a lot of the work that I do tends to be the stand back and look at the larger structural features of countries or regions that experience terrorism, um, which is a little bit different from a lot of other work that's done in the field, which looks at much more closely. So like in, in the Irish context, what was the importance of this particular historical event in terms of producing terrorism? And so I would say, you know, you, you had sort of a, 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 a real paucity of work out there that looked at the sociological and economic roots. And it could well have been because terrorism experts previously were kind of skeptical about that. It could have been that they kind of were on the ball faster than I was and sort of thinking that, you know, terrorism is cultural and it's symbolic and it's, it's about political grievances and political identity. And, and maybe it just, they had already kind of realized that the economic roots are not really the best place to hunt for the real predictors. Um, a lot of the policy discussions that were occurring around 9-11, and that continues today, though, look for those, those sociological and economic explanations. So it's very, very common to still see, even today, policymakers saying, well, if you have a terrorism problem, it's really about jobs and unemployment, it's about economic grievances, and so therefore, if we just increase development in these areas, you're going to reduce terrorism. And I, I'm a skeptic of that. I, um, my, my skepticism, I, it's important that my skepticism doesn't leave you to believe that those things in and of themselves are not good to do. I mean, I'm a big believer that you need to eradicate poverty. Um, I just think I get nervous when uh, policymakers claim that there's going to be a, some sort of dividend paid in terms of lower terrorism because of doing that. Um, it, could have, it could have been the case that a lot of the more qualitative and theoretical work had already kind of figured that out. Yeah. And also, in, in order to get this understanding, um, of case-specific uh, situations. I know that you've you've stated uh, prior to this this interview that the the work of Abrahamin uh, on radical Islam, the Iranian Mujahideen, uh, was influential on your research as well. What was it about this research that that influenced you and that you found worthwhile? Yeah, it's kind of interesting that I did mention that because that is the example of a deep dive one single case, Iran, one very discrete time period, sort of the 50s through like the 70s, and one group, the Mujahideen and Kalk, the MEK movement. Um, you know, that, that's, sort of the, that's sort of the opposite of the type of work that I do, but that was so influential to me. I was a graduate student at Michigan studying uh, Mid Middle East studies at the time when I picked up that book. Um, um, the book looks, it's a, it's a completely historical treatment of the evolution of the MEK movement, which is quite interesting. I think what struck me the most about that was the ideology of the MEK. I found that to be, just at the time, I was interested in radical Islam, and, and, and I, I still am. I still like to sort of do analyses to see how ideology and religion fosters terrorism. The MEK movement was very unique. It, it, it began as an offshoot of the leftist armed movements that are trying to oust the Shah, like in the in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s. Um, but it wasn't secular. It sort of blended this sort of Islamic radicalism with a Marxist critique of the Shah's regime in society. And I, 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 the, the closest analog I can, I can think of with sort of the Western world would be sort of a liberation theology ideology. 
And I, I haven't really found anything else like that in the rest of the Islamic world. And so I found that to be really, really intriguing. And so I just was just extremely uh, interested in that. I wrote my master's thesis on, on the MEK movement um, uh, under Saddam Hussein's war with Iraq, with, with, with Iran. Um, they became eventually sort of co-opted <clears throat> into Saddam's military campaign against Iran, and they lost a lot of support because of that. They went into exile, and they had sort of like, you know, patches of supporters in the United States and in France and in the UK and other places where you have a lot of Iranian expats. And they changed their ideology so many times. Now they're sort of like this, we're a human rights group that wants to overthrow Iran because the Iranian regime is repressive of human rights and, and we're interested in women's rights. Um, in a lot of ways, there's sort of this chameleon type movement that sort of changes ideology. One thing I kind of keep coming back to, and I haven't found a, a really great way to study this yet, is to sort of see how ideological changes in terrorist movements sort of affect things. Mean, so what, what sort of precipitates that and what are the consequences of that? And the MEK is a good example of a movement that's changed its ideology over time to kind of suit the, the winds. Yeah, because that was going to be my next question. Why <laughs> were they changing ideology? Like it's, it's, it's a fascinating thing to look at, like the evolution of an ideology. And it, like that's a dramatic example of the ideology shifting so much. But you see it in other groups as well. And it, it's definitely something that, uh, that future research co could look at. But as you say, it's a tricky one to look at. It's, it uh, is. And I guess, I mean, you could sort of see more subtle shifts, for example, with the Republican movement in Ireland, where you have a Marxist phase and you have another phase where that's that's just less prominent. That's just not something that's part of the ideology that's strongly. But, you know, it's a pretty, you know, it, you know, what what has what has caused the Mujahideen Caulk to change its ideology? I think the the more immediate and cynical answer would be just, you know, op, op, opportunism, yeah. you know, um, you know, they're, they're, what they're trying to do now is to attract foreign government support for regime change in Iran. What they really want is the U.S. government to recognize them as the vehicle through which a revolution is going to occur in Iran and they're going to be put in charge. Uh, much like, you know, the neocon movement did with Iraqi dissidents. I think that, they, that that's their model, right? Mm -hmm. And so they've adapted their ideology to match what they think the West has as a critique of Iran, which would be human rights. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm a little bit hard-pressed to see, to think of an example, and perhaps you can, of another terrorist movement, our movement, that's been so profound in a change like that, to be so blatantly opportunistic. It would be kind of like, you know, one of the loyalist movements deciding that they they really decided that they were anti-Brexit or something. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I, don't, I can't think of another, you know, I don't really know that I can think of another example of that. Yeah, I, I can't think of one either, but I'm sure some of our <laughs> listeners will be tweeting obvious ones at us now once uh, good, good. once we're they're finished listening to the podcast. And you know me with my research interests, Jim. Yeah, I'd, I'd say you can figure out what the next question is going to be. <laughs> Were you seeing splits with these ideological changes now? Oh, what a great question. Yeah, what a great question. Um, yeah, so I do, I do know that your work look, looks at the dissident movements and splitting within the you know, Republican movements and, and everything else And so in, in Ireland. Um, um, not that, not, now, one caveat is I haven't studied the Mujahideen closely other than just reading the newspaper and going to their websites. and that, I haven't done a sustained study. Uh, but no, not really, not really. I mean, they have made alliances over time with other anti-Islamic Republic Iranian regime movements. Like they were allied with British Kurdish movements at one time, and 
and other um, violence and nonviolence and mass and singular one person type sort of political entities in Iran. And they've split with them over time. Mm -hmm. But that's not really a split in the movement. I, I'm hard pressed to think of an example where the Mujahideenikov really had a faction of itself that broke away and decided to do something else. It's, and I think there's a good reason for that. And the Mujahideenikov is, in a lot of ways, a lot is structured in some similar ways to what the Shining Path was, okay. to what the and to what the P, and to what the PKK was, um, and what the Tunnel Tigers were. And that you had a singular leader, the singular leader at the head of the movement. In this case, it's a, it's a woman. Her name is Mariam Rajavi, and she occupies in a lot. She occupies in a very, very important symbolic uh, role for the movement. And the movement is very disciplined. Uh, critics have called it sort of cult-like, you know, in terms of sort of devotion people have to it. And I think that those movements might be a little bit more durable. You know, it, 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 they're not. They don't maybe don't lend themselves to splits as much mm. as a movement that is much more traditionally organized with a command council or a, a typical structure. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's something interesting that to to look at further in depth uh, afterwards. And you, what you also point out that the work of Robert Pape, the strategic logic of suicide terrorism, also had an influence on on your way of thinking about terrorism. What was it about about this piece about about Pape's two thousand and three piece that that influenced you? Um, I'm a huge <clears throat> that. Piece, so the article and then, of course, his follow-up book. I, I, I'm a big fan, and the reason I'm a big fan is not because the analysis and the argument is unassailable. I think it's pretty clear that there's been a whole cottage industry in critical analysis, you know, critical investigation of Pape's data, his analysis, his conclusions, and I think that that's very healthy. Um, it isn't the unassailability <clears throat> of the work and the findings. It's the fact that I think he transformed the field. I think that he, as a more than anyone else in a lot of ways, maybe maybe Todd Sandler would be a rival to this, you know. But um, he his work got us talking about terrorism in a way we weren't talking about it before. I think that that's what's really really important about it. And and um, you know, um, prior to his work, I think we were too casually assuming that. Suicide ter ter terrorism was only religious terrorism, where it was only something that he produced from religious movements, that it was done by people who were crazy or mentally addled, uh, that, you know, there was nothing strategic about it. And I think he really changed that for us. I think he really opened the door for us to challenge a lot of those assumptions, even though some of his conclusions, um, uh, you know, are have been criticized by others, including myself. Um, so... I really see that work as important because it's a catalyst for moving the field together. I think it really helped create the whole wing of terrorism studies that uses sort of data, uh, cross-sectional, cross-national data to try to examine what causes terrorism and what are the consequences of terrorism. Um, <clears throat> well, I think Pape's work, again, because it's sort of this watershed, very crucial first cut, mm. I think his work... Um, illustrates the, and again, some, some of these would be criticisms that have arised about Pape's work. Some of them are not criticisms that are, that are leveled at Pape's work that, that, that he handled quite well, but just are just to underscore the importance. And one, of course, is selection bias. That's the big issue with that, that, that you know, selecting the dependent variable, that 
that, that selection of the sample that you're looking at, whether it's people, whether it's countries, whether it's terrorist movements, is abs I mean, it's the whole game. It's absolutely critical. The sample that you were able to develop and use um, is super important. And there's a huge, very robust debate about that, with critics saying, well, the sample that, you know, the, the, you know, the sampling technique that was used um, is inappropriate, Pape's retort is, but it's not a sample at all, it's the universe of all evident and of all events, so that's not an issue. Um, again, I would just point to this as a really important and healthy discussion we're having. I think it's always important to worry about the sample. Um, measurement, you know, uh, one of the criticisms that has been leveled about that work is, you know, how he measures what an occupation is, how he measures whether or not a country's a democracy. Um, you know, there's, a, there's, there's two people can, people can have different ideas about, about whether or not they've been done appropriately. Um, to me, that's a good important take on point where, you know, you, you and I are in a field in which there is a real difficulty to get precise measurements of extremely complex things. Yeah. And I think that, that I, when I've looked at Pape's work and some of the comments on Pape's work, I, I get filled with a sense of humility, you know, that it's really hard to measure things. It's really, really hard to really measure the most important things that we want to analyze in the field. And I think we need to be very careful about it. And I respect the fact that his work has started a discussion about that. Yeah, no, I, I think it, it's it's very healthy and it has it has greatly influenced the way that we think, not just about suicide terrorism, but about terrorism as a whole as well. And and the, as you said, the ways that we analyze um, analyze this behavior and analyze uh, the surrounding variables as well. And one of the ways that you've looked at it, as I said in the introduction, that you've looked at the role that education, poverty and other factors can have on influencing uh, involvement in terrorism. And I can see there, therefore, why you've picked the Kruger and Malakova piece, Education, Poverty and Terrorism, Is There a Causal Connection from 2003, as one of your, as your final influential piece. What, what was this, uh, obviously it's, it's quite self-evident in the, in the title, but what was this uh, research about and what did they find? Um, so th th this is a piece that I think is in a lot of ways the, um, the most important early work on poverty, education, socioeconomic status, and, and, and the proclivity to join, engage in, or voice support for various forms of terrorism. Um, it's a piece that I, it's interesting in that it's a piece that I have my undergraduate classes on terrorism read, and I use it for my grad classes as well, and I find myself citing it all the time. It's, it's one of the most cited pieces in the, on this topic. Um, and I guess I should start off with a caveat in saying, um, as close as I can get to being completely clear in, on something, I'm pretty clear that there's not a simple direct relationship between poverty, lack of education, unemployment, socioeconomic um, um, uh, distress for the typical person. Mm -hmm. And terrorism. Now, is it a more complex relationship? I don't know. I don't know that we know that yet. You know, there's been a lot of good work recently, uh, later uh, that that sort of looks at it in a more complex way. If it's non-linear, and depends on what type of, is it indirect? Is it a mediating factor? I think all those things are possible. But I think that the Kruger-Malakova piece shows 
sort of helps to demolish this very simple argument that when people are poor, when they don't have jobs, when they have poor education, when they're economically stressed, they are more likely to engage in or support terrorism. I don't think we find that at all. I think that that's, it's more complex than that. I think that's because terrorism, after all, is a very fringe behavior. Most people that are frustrated about anything don't become terrorists and don't support terrorism. You know, it still is the behavior of a of a of a, a, a person that might be on the margins politically or anywhere else. And so, uh, that's sort of key. What the piece does is it actually takes several different pieces of evidence to show a consistent pattern that. Um, one of them is one of the pieces of evidence is that they look at survey data on Palestinians about support for, support for suicide bombings, and they find, for example, that it tends to be better educated, employed, and more affluent Palestinians that tend to voice support for suicide bombing. You know, at the very best, at the very least, you could say that really there's not that much of a difference between poorer and wealthier Palestinians for this support for terrorism. And so that's one piece of evidence. They have some data from from Barabi in it that looks at members of Hamas, and they actually find that their education levels are higher um, than the typical Palestinian. It suggests to me that there's a selection process going on. Hamas, of course, is inundated with pot, with supporters and volunteers, and what do, you, what do you do when you're inundated, when you have more applicants than you have slots? You pick the ones that are best qualified, the best educated. And that's probably what's going um, They have some data on the Hezbollah movement and its members, people who were shahids, people who had become martyrs and died in suicide attacks for the movement, and lo and behold, the, that body of body is at best not different from the typical Lebanese in terms of economic status, in fact, a little bit better. Um, they also do a cross-national, so it's kind of really, it's tightly packed. It's a hard mm -hmm. piece to read because they have a lot of, it's this a barrage of different types of tests and analyses that sort of demonstrate this. And so, um, again, this piece is just, it's sort of critical. Everyone cites it. You have to, it's, it's the starting point for any responsible research on the economic roots of terrorism. Yeah. And you've used that as an inspiration to go on for your, for your own work. And the, the one that you've chosen that, that I feel fits best with this piece and develops on from this piece is your, uh, your article from 2011 in the Journal of Peace Research, Poverty, Minority Economic Discrimination and Domestic Terrorism. Um, how did you build on the research of Kruger and Malakova for this piece, and what were, what did you, what did you find in in your analysis here? It's a good question. So, so what happened with that piece is that I, you know, I, I kind of was motivated by something I said just a few minutes ago, and that is, um, there, there clearly is a terrorism is clearly a behavior that you see among that is exhibited among people that are at the margins politically of society. I don't mean marginal economically. I mean that these are, you know, it isn't the modal typical person that engages in terrorism. It's, it's, it's people that, for whatever reason, are outside the mode of society. And so I thought minorities would be a good example of that. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's the case that when you look at an aggrieved minority within a country, the combination of being a minority, having this minority grievance, and then having economic grievance on top of that in terms of discrimination, facing discrimination, not poverty, but discrimination, might be the cocktail <clears throat> that explains how they feel locked out and they have to engage in terrorist activity. And so, so I examined that. That piece is a very funny finding. So the piece finds, it looks country by country, it's a country year analysis, and it uses data from the uh, minorities at risk, the MAR database, 
and uh, several of the codes that are found in that. It, I had to convert it by hand to a country or format of a lot of time. It's kind of a pain in the neck. Um, so I did that. I put it, I plugged it all in, and I found that the, the aggregate economic af, um, indicators, for example, the gross national income of a country, a pretty standard measure of how impoverished a country, doesn't at all predict that that country will experience more terrorism. In fact, it, 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 it expends less terrorism. It, 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 it predicts the opposite. It's the countries with the higher gross national income in that analysis that actually experience more terrorist activity. And I think there's a couple of explanations for that. One is such countries have better terrorist targets, right? They, they're, just, they're, they're a more lucrative place to launch a terrorist attack because you get more attention. The media assets are more developed there that will cover it. Uh, Claude Barabee Ber made a comment once, uh, I think it's really, really important, where he said it's kind of interesting that in the poor countries you see insurgency, but in the rich countries you see terrorism. I think that that's probably part of what's being picked up, right? It could really be that in richer countries the state is strong, and when the state is strong, of course, terrorism is more likely to be used as a tactic, as a weapon of the weak. Um, so that's interesting. So that you actually find a positive relationship between wealth and terrorist activity. But at the same time, I also find that where minorities are experiencing economic discrimination, there's more terrorism too. So that suggests something of an economic root, but very highly qualified and very indirect. You know, mm -hmm. it seems to translate through minority economic grievance as a minority economic discrimination experience. So it's interesting that you chose economic discrimination rather than poverty. Definition, definitionally speaking, what are the key differences there? What's the difference between someone who's impoverished and someone who's economically discriminated? I guess that's a really good question. I, 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 I'm amazed hearing you say that that a reviewer didn't ask me that to sort of totally differentiate. They should have asked me to differentiate those things. Poverty is a larger sociological status, you know, where we say um, there's a certain sort of aggregate status that, you know, a, a, a person needs to be able to fulfill their basic human needs, right? And if you're below that, you're impoverished. It's an impoverished society. Or we can rank all countries based on how productive their economy is, right? In a lot of ways, these poverty measures are about the economy of the country, right? Mm -hmm. Which could be an issue, right? Um, and they're about the status of the person relative to the rest of the economy, right? Um, I, to me, ex you know, economic discrimination is a political and sociological experience that people have, you know? It's a, you know, so you can have a, a, you oftentimes have very wealthy societies, areas where there's a lot of wealth, there's a lot of affluence, but there is a subcategory of people based on their race or ethnicity, religion or what have you, that their sectarian religious identity in which they face barriers to economic well-being. So, for example, the Catholics in Northern Ireland uh, in the 70s and 80s faced pretty severe discrimination as Catholics, at, you know. Uh, they were barred. The unions barred them from certain jobs. They didn't get a lot certain allotments for council, state housing, and so on. But that doesn't. And Northern Ireland, of course, had economically poor times at times. But it's an affluent society. It's not Bangladesh, you know. And so, I, I that would be might be a way to sort of illustrate the difference between discrimination, economic discrimination, and um, and overall poverty in a country. Yeah, and I suppose when you're when we're reading this article, you do talk about those issues about access to healthcare, education, housing. It's not just what's 
what's in your bank account or in your wallet it's it's a lot of different factors uh linked to that i suppose with my psychologist hat on there it's not just the presence of a discrimination that's uh that's necessary there has to be the perception of that discrimination as well yeah. and sometimes the perception on its own without the actual discrimination can be as powerful potentially i think that that's a really good observation i think you've already, you've sort of been able to explain that in a, in a way that's a little bit more cute than i have yeah um in thinking about cases that you and i know about absolutely i mean it could very well be it is you know perception it is it is the institutionalization of economic discrimination that produces highly sharpened grievances in Northern Ireland, uh, in many ways irrespective of the individual's personal status. You can imagine people living in Northern Ireland um, who maybe personally are not unemployed or maybe are not living in a neighborhood with high unemployment, but they are aggrieved by the fact that there is uh, there is a second-class citizenship for Catholics in the country in the 1970s. You know, and you know this suggests. To me, that there's an important, there are important psychological and symbolic, you know, um, you know, factors that are sort of poignant to people rather than the absolute status of being impoverished. Um, you know, some people would argue that if 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 support for terrorism or engagement in terrorism is a, you know, albeit it is a fringe, illegal political act, it's a political act, though, right? If someone's basic needs aren't being masked, met, met, and if you have a person that's really truly struggling day to day, you know, people tend to kind of put off political, worrying about political things for the time being, right? Um, you know, that would suggest to me that it's the larger perception that society is discriminating against a minority that is going to be the motivator rather than just experience of poverty by somebody. Yeah, and it's these findings uh if if and when they ring tr- true they don't they have a knock-on effect to how we look at countering and preventing terrorism as well because the towards the end of the article you talk about well what do we do with the, these findings and you say that this might point in the direction that our traditional way of looking at counterterrorism might has to have to be revisited that we need to draw in public health we need to draw in education as well in a in a NECT policy that is to work if this is to ring through. Why do you believe that? Well, not why do you believe this, but how do you think that this can be uh, implemented well? Um, very good question. I can certainly imagine how it would be poorly in, implemented as opposed mm-hmm. to implemented well. Yeah. Um, if you think of the exam, if you think of the Northern Ireland case, and forgive me for picking on your case here, you know more about more about than I do. But you know, you could imagine. What would the what would the impact be of taking Northern Ireland in the '70s and the U.S. government writing a fat check and giving it to Stormont and, and giving it to the British government or giving it to whatever authorities are in Northern Ireland, but the discriminatory policies against Catholics are still kept in place? You know, I don't know that that would at all address grievances because that really is not what the problem. It's not the problem of absolute poverty. It's it's the again it's the problem of unequal distribution of society's resources, and it's the humiliation of being a second-class citizen that produces sympathy for Republican terrorism and boosts the amount of supporters that are, that are there. Um, you can certainly, there's quite a bit of discussion in the aid literature about how important it is to have the political fundamentals, lack of corruption, transparency, 
uh, good governance on the ground before you give a country aid. That if you give a country without those things aid, then the aid is not very effective. There's a that, that's a very old and common discussion that, that people have. Uh, one could imagine the same thing if you're talking about the fundamentals of discrimination or human rights or what have you on the ground for terrorism. You know, you could I I would be a little bit skeptical um, that anti-poverty measures, which are so sorely needed in the world, are necessarily going to yield a counterterrorism dividend absent addressing these other factors like like discrimination and human rights. Yeah, and in in that discussion, you talk about the Millennium Challenge account uh, that was that was that was there. What was what was the Millennium Challenge account for those listeners who don't know about it? Sure. So the so so um, the uh, Millennium Challenge account was a policy that came into place um, under President uh, Bush um, after the two thousand and one attacks. Um, it, he made a proposal, this was never adopted by Congress, but he made a proposal to double the total U.S. aid budget to impoverished countries. Now, Congress never actually fully funded that, but step one was we're going to give a lot more aid to the world because I think in his heart he believed that poverty was a root cause of terrorism. Um, but what he wanted to do was to create this challenge account, which would create all of these criteria for good economic and political stewardship in exchange for receiving this money. So a country, a poverty country that wished to receive Millennium Challenge grant monies would have to engage in political reforms, get rid of corruption and better governance and reform the economy and, and, and all these kind of things to be able to be eligible for it. And then future disbursements or tranches would be based on meeting guidelines to continue moving towards better governance. Um, the Millennium Challenge account on paper looks like what I'm talking about. It looks sort of like, you know, um, foster good governance. Um, the problem was, of course, it wasn't fully funded. <clears throat> it was really distributed, though, to countries that were already allies of the United States. And a lot of the political and economic requirements, the criterion, were, were critics said, were designed around a much more sort of ideological, neoliberal sort of view, right? So, for example, uh, countries were required to, um, you know, uh, to uh, reduce government expenditures to subsidize agriculture and housing, right, as a way towards transitioning towards a free market economy. You know, um, countries that had already been working with the United States to do this were the first to receive this, and they weren't necessarily countries that experienced a lot of terrorism anyway. You know, um, you know, um, you know, a lot of the political reforms were, you know, moving towards a democracy, moving towards, you know, more political openness, but we're not super explicit about those things. So critics sort of say it wasn't fully funded, it was already targeted towards U.S. allies, and a lot of the more, maybe more meaningful reforms were not ones that um, were built into the criteria. So, for example, you could have a country that um, receive million challenge accounts, um, but continue to engage in pretty high-pressure counterterrorism efforts that created human rights abuses because, you know, counterterrorism was not considered to be one of the, you know, you know fair counterterrorism treating people fair. It was not part of the criteria. Yeah, yeah. And, like, <clears throat> looking at this article, while, we, while the article focuses on economic discrimination and how that can uh, drive... Um, or can be connected to terrorism. 
you also within the article you state that it's not just that this is assisting people uh, as a legitimization towards terrorism you say that the terror terrorist groups themselves channel these minority group grievances into violence and they channel it to be able to draw people towards the groups it's not just uh, from it's it's not just about uh, the people rising up themselves it's the the groups themselves looking at and go okay we can channel this grievance here as well we can utilize it for our own for our own good as well yeah so it turns out that um mobilization of people for any political activity whether it's to get out and vote or to you know go to a protest that's peaceful or to join an armed movement which is not peaceful um mobilization is a key tool a key challenge mm -hmm. um and there are certain types of situations and when it's when, in which it's easy to mobilize people and there's certain types of situations where it's not easy to mobilize people. If you're talking about a, a smaller ethnic or minority group or a sectarian group in a wider society that already feels different from the rest of society and there's already kind of built up a way of acting in which it's self-reliant and it, it only trusts other members of itself, there are leaders within that community, that just creates a situation that's easier to mobilize people into collective action behavior, which all types of collective action behavior. So you see this quite a bit with voting blocks in, in countries, right, where ethnic communities um, are easier, can, can be easier to mobilize um, um, than like a majority community can be, you know. Um, and that, that was really kind of the purpose of that. I, 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 that just struck me that that would be, you know, uh, thinking about Crenshaw's argument, you can you have this under, underlying condition, which is this discrimination against a group. So they feel aggrieved anyway, right? They also feel distinct, right? The discrimination helps them feel even more distinct, that they are different from the rest of society. They don't really, I also I think the, argue, the article also talks about um, a lack of willingness to work with counterterrorism officials, to work with the police. The police aren't really trusted. Um, a, a reliance on the group itself and leaders within the group. I mean, that would strike me as a as a scenario in which it would be easier to engage in any sort of collective action called terrorism. Yeah. And so that's your work on uh, economic discrimination. And but you also look at regime type as well. And that leads us on to our next piece, um, autocracies and terrorism conditioning effects of a ter authoritarian regime type on terrorist attacks. This is a piece that you did with uh, Matthew Wilson in 2013. What could you give us an overview of this research? Okay, so this research, so Matt Wilson is a faculty member now at West Virginia University, but he was a graduate student at Penn State at the time. And um, this paper came about as um, a comment that Matt made at a I don't even know what the comment was. It was a comment of brown bag we were giving in the department. And, and um, it was so Matt, Matt's research is really about regimes. Mm -hmm. He is fascinated with authoritarian regimes, all the you know, elements of authoritarianism and all that kind of stuff. And he asked a question along the lines of that. He's a very, very sharp guy. And so I, I caught him walking out the door and said, hey, would you ever want to look at this in the context of terrorism? And, and that's what the product was of the, of the collaboration, this paper. Um, you know, a lot of, I mean, this is going to, this is one of those things where political scientists take a long time to come up with stuff that other people maybe think is kind of obvious, you know, mm -hmm. um, but you know, we're, we're trying to say it very systematically. But, <laughs> you know, so it turns out authoritarianism is not one thing, right? It turns out that there are different types of authoritarian regimes, you know, 
the traditional political science literature talked about two types of regimes, democracy, and we called non-democracy, okay? Mm -hmm. Well, it turns out a lot of the interesting things to look at are on the non-democracy side, and you have all these different types of personalistic non-democracies, you have autocracies that are party-based, you have autocracies that are military-based, you have ones that are royal, all this kind of stuff. And they're really, these importances are really, these, impor these differences are very, very important. And, and Matt's obsessed with this kind of stuff. He knows in and out, okay? And so we decided, it's, very, it's a simple study in a lot of ways. We just decided, you know, what type of, you know, the traditional finding has been that terrorism occurs more frequently in democracies and less frequently in autocracies, but surely autocracies differ from each other. And so what types of regimes experience the most and the least? And so we actually found that, with, I jog my memory here, we found that military regimes experience more terrorism than other types of autocracies, but that the party-based um, bureaucratic authoritarian regimes ruled by a bureaucratic elite party, you know, based cadres, experience the least. And a lot of these, like the Soviet, the former Soviet, you know, Eastern Bloc ones. And um, and we think we have an argument for that. We think our argument is that in the party-based regimes, authoritarian regimes, you have the perfect mix between coercion and um, co-option, right? They're the best able to mobilize these two means to take dissidents off the table, right? They are much better able than the other types of authoritarian regimes to just buy people out, uh, to integrate them into the regime, to buy off their support, and they do that all the time. Uh, they are also better able, they're less inhibited than certainly democracies, with just being able to crush dissidents. I mean, they don't have to worry about human rights and civil liberties and that kind of stuff. And so that's the perfect, you want to stop, so be flippant here, it suggests that you know, you want to stop terrorism. You need authority. You know, you need that that type of regime type. Yeah. You know, um, so we, that that was just kind of our, our our examination of it. Interestingly enough, I've done I've done some work. It's it's recently published with Todd Sandler, that that looks at it. We actually find something in some ways consistent with that, but it's it's a nonlinear relationship. The very advanced democracies, the ones that are you know the Norways and the Swedens and Switzerlands and you know the Irelands, right? The advanced democracies. They actually, you know, they're, they're not among the democracies that experience the most terrorism. It's really these sort of democracies that have non-democratic institutions still in them. So sort of like the Turkey, when Turkey was a democracy, the Turkeys, you know, the newer democracies, the recently transitioned democracies that still have a lot of vestiges of authoritarian institutions within them. We call these, the, these are called the anocracies, right? These are the hybrid type regimes. Mm -hmm. That's really, really where a lot of terrorism occurs too, right? Okay. So the absolute authoritarian regimes in North Korea, they just crush dissent. Just, there's just no way, you know. Um, the highly democratic regimes can, can be, provide ways in which grievances are redressed, and they're also highly incentivized to stop to be good at counterterrorism. They have the resources to do that as well. It really is sort of like your turkeys that are going to be really in the firing line. And why why is it that these anocracies? Uh, what what is it about them during this this in between stage that makes them more vulnerable? Then we suspect, although we have not, this would be great to test. I'm not sure how we do it, but we we have not tested this. But but there's a pretty big literature that these types of regimes are incompetent and important. No, I was incompetent. They're they're unprepared in various ways to deal with 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 extra legal dissent. Mm -hmm. um, they, um, 
their their institutions, so voting, their party structures, uh, their ability, uh, avenues to be able to influence policy and bureaucracy are they're not very well developed. That they still are affected by the longer legacies of authoritarian rule that occurred. They've recently transitioned, and they are still affected by this longer legacy of authoritarian rule. They're those institutions are not very efficient yet at, at, at taking the would-be terrorist and channeling them back into the system. Mm. Um, but at the same time, they're still hamstrung and unable to really crack down. So, I mean, Turkey is not able to crack down on dissent the way North Korea does, mm -hmm. right? Um, it, it does have constitutional and other safeguards that, that prohibit the police from doing that. And so they get the worst of both worlds. They don't get the repressive capacity of the authoritarian regime. But they don't get the co-optive, you know, capacity of the of the of the um, of the full democracy and the and the resources to be able to to engage in counterterrorism. And so that we think that that's the sweet spot. Yeah, and I suppose watching a country like Turkey, which you've brought up um, in this discussion, we're wa watching the evolution of a regime type there as well, potentially at the moment. So it would be, uh, if there's obviously a lot of a lot of worrying things happening there, but. It would be fascinating to watch to see the the transition and see what what effects this can have as well. And certainly, that's not the only problem Turkey faces. I mean, Turkey, yeah. of course, it's, um, you know, it's a it's an ethnically diverse society, and it's um, it's on the border with uh, Iraq. It's on the border in, in a region. We know that that living close to a region where there's a lot of terrorism also boosts terrorist activity within your own country. That's certainly the case, and and it, it is certainly not the only issue that's facing. But we control for those things too. We control for you know. Or ethnic fractionalization in the country and that kind of stuff. It seems to still hold that. It's certainly the regime type plays a role. Yeah, it's uh, and that's the key message here. Like I've I've got written down here in my notes, uh, terrorism equals sensitive to regime type. That's the key take home message from this this piece and from from other pieces as well. And it's it's interesting looking not just at uh, coercion and co option, but looking at those that can pursue the pursue both together and the effect that it that it has as well and that that really comes uh comes true from the from the paper as well and the final piece that um that you put forward has been some of your key research uh it's repression and terrorism across national empirical analysis of types of repression and domestic terrorism so while you looked at types of uh, regime types and you looked at types of autocracies there, you're not just saying it's binary, it's not just democracy or not democracy, you're, you're, you're looking at the nuance. It's the same with repression here. You're not just looking at, okay, it, what does repression do, but types of repression there. So what types of repression were you, uh, were you analyzing in this piece? Yeah, so now, now is the point at which I can contradict what I've just said, right? Um, and that is... You know, wouldn't you think, though, if I'm saying, well, repression is a tool that authoritarian regimes use, that North Korea doesn't experience terrorism as much because it could just repress, you know? Well, it turns out some types of repression, it's a mixed bag. Some types of repression actually boost more terrorist activity, we think, you know? Um, and what I wanted to do with that piece is that after I, I had written a, a, a piece and published a piece with Jim Walsh that looked at... Um, human rights violations and terrorist activity, and I found a positive relationship. Countries that seem to engage more in human rights violations experience more terrorism subsequently. I wanted to kind of break that down and look at all, like compare all types of repression um, against each other. And I think I believe in that piece I looked at, I think religious repression, repression on women's rights, labor repression, 
um, de democratic repression, like for example, repression, you know, uh, inability to, you know, re repression of the right to vote, um, free speech, media censorship, um, movement, people's repression, control over whether people can move within the country or abroad, um, and um, so I found that some matter, some don't, and I, I thought it was I, I, I included this piece as part of my repertoire here to talk about because I. I feel like a lot more can be done in this area. I think it's really, really interesting in terms of what exactly is it that under, and generally speaking, we can think that countries that torture, that, that, that violate people's human rights more, might experience more terrorism. There's two issues with that. One is very intractable, which was we haven't worked out the direction of causation to a definitive way with that in the field. And there's an endogenous relationship. There's a question about the direction of the causality between you know, terrorism and and um, and uh, human rights violations. It could very well be that, yes, it's true that when you repress human rights violations, that for various reasons causes grievances to go up. I think it also adversely impacts cooperation with other countries on counterterrorism and, and so on, um, which makes it harder to stop terrorism, which means you experience more terrorism. But clearly countries also repress because they're worried about terrorism. You know what I mean? If you think about the British case, or the American case, you have a lot of, uh, you know, you do see a lot more abuses of people when the regime has become worried about terrorism. And yeah. so they probably complexly, we, we don't have good statistical tools, convincing statistical tools to definitively work that out. You know, we, we can do more of that, but we haven't definitively worked those things out. Um, so that's, that's, that's a really important issue. I did have a second point that I'm like now blanking on here, but the, I guess so the second point about this, oh, again, which would be what, what specific, I mean, is all repression the same? Is it sort of different types of repression? And so I found, I reproduced a lot of stuff I'd, produce, I'd originally found, and that is, you know, in this latest piece, um, violation of physical integrity rights, which would be the right not to be physically harmed, yeah. imprisoned, politically imprisoned, uh, extrajudicially killed, disappeared, or tortured, those come in again as a significant contributor to future terrorist activity, um, minority discrimination of all types, political, cultural, economic, those all come in as well. Um, I, 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 th those are reproductions of existing finds. I think I also found that religious repression is a significant predictor. I have to double, yeah. it's been a while since I wrote that piece, you know, yeah. and double, double check that. I, I, um, I do think that having considering the possibility that different types of regime repression might have different effects on terrorism is a key to unlocking that one question about why maybe certain types of authoritarian regimes don't experience more terrorism than, than they do, mm -hmm. right? I think the implications would also be for the democratic regimes, which was well, what types of repressive policies, because democracies do engage in repression sometimes, right? Yeah. What types of, of repressive policies are going to produce more terrorism for us in the future or not, right? And I like to think of this as just a warning sign. When, when should we expect to have more problems with terrorism based on regime behavior? Yeah, and do, your dependent variable here is the count of terrorist attacks, the number of terrorist attacks that you see. And you, you're, primar you're purely focusing here on domestic terrorism, so we're not considering international terrorism in this. Did you, in your analyses at all, look not just at count of terrorist attacks, but the type of terrorist attacks that we're seeing within those counts, whether the repression can 
uh, can lead to certain forms of terrorism, certain forms of terrorist behavior, whereas, and not others? Uh, or was it just purely dot-dependent variable? It's purely the count, but that is a very arresting idea. You could imagine that um, if we think terrorism is, 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 a, is, a, is a tactical behavior that's adaptive, right? Mm-hmm. That, that you know, terrorists are going, I, 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 think, I think we can assume, I think most of us think that. Most mm-hmm. of us think that terrorist groups do deliberately try different tactics based on the strategic environment, the tactical environment they live in, mm-hmm. right? Why, of course, you would expect that the repressive environment affects that tactical environment. And if that's the case, you should be able to see reactions. You should be able to see countries, regimes having different times of type. You see terrorist movements adapt in different ways. So, for example, do you see suicide terrorism more frequently when there's not repression, and when there is, or is it in the, come in the wake of repression? Mm-hmm. Um, do we we're seeing all kinds of? I mean, they're very low tech, but they're interesting innovations. So the use of automobiles and cars to just mow people down. It's Unfortunately, that's happened in the United Kingdom. It's also happened in the United States in Charlottesville. Um, is that a tactical adaptation that that repression and other environmental factors kind of are shaping? Um, I would think that would be tremendously interesting, of course, for us as scholars and useful for practitioners as well to sort of try to understand the degree to which what you do in terms of counterterrorism may affect behavior yeah. of the terrorist movement. The, 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 the study is very much a first count. Another... I use just a count of terrorist events. I don't actually look at, I don't remember if I looked at this, this as a robustness check or not, but another way to look at it would be also casualties. I mean, is there more high casualty terrorism? Um, is there more targeting of civilians? Is there more targeting of, do, do terrorists select different targets? You can look at casualties, targets, mode. All those things would be something you would want to put on the table. That's a really, we ought to collaborate. That's a really great idea. Yeah, yeah, because it's it's a perfect starting point to, to start with that pure count of terrorist attacks and then from that parse it out even more, look at the nuance, look at the complexity and look at, see where the evolutions and changes are. And it's it's respecting that heterogeneity that we've got there uh, in the terrorist, not just the with the forms of repression, but within the forms of terrorism as well. I think it could be really interesting. It could be a really interesting thing to put forward. And in your in the piece, you put forward three explanations, uh, three uh, in, in relation to why repression would have uh, an effect on terrorism there. Repression raises the costs of terrorism, repression closes nonviolent avenues, and repression is a key ingredient of formation and aggravation of grievances. These are the three hypotheses that that were put forward. Um, What did your data say? Which one did it most closely um, back up? That's a really great question. Uh, Well, not all the forms of repression come in, Mm. right? the, the forms of repression that are found to be significant positive predictors are ones are, that are most closely related to the, to the, to the hypothesis that I think, the, the, to, the, to the motivator that I find to be the least satisfying and the most ambiguous, which is grievance. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's a term I use constantly in my work and my writing. It's sort of a black box. You know, people are grieving. What does a grievance mean? They're mad. They're, they're disenchanted. They're upset. That isn't really that very satisfying, you know. Mm-hmm. I, 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 I hate to sort of dump on this, but, but yes, I mean, the, to answer your question, the types of rep- I try to use the types of repression to be able to model the ways in which um, 
repression, the mechanism, the mechanisms through which repression is going to affect terrorist activity, mm. which is the wider strategic environment, the costs associated, and grievance and other things, right? The grievances come in because, of course, minority discrimination is, again, found to be uh, significant, physical integrity rights are, are significant, and the easiest way to kind of link that to more terrorism is, is grievance, becoming more aggrieved, right? Um, if physical integrity rights reduce violations, human rights violations, reduce terrorism, that's more of evidence that the strategic environment has changed to dangerous to become a terrorist now, you pursue other means. But we don't find that's the opposite, so it's grievance. Um, in social science, we often do have these black box concepts, yeah. radicalization. Why did it happen? Well, when it became radicalized, what is that? I have no idea. I don't know, I don't know what radicalization is. I don't know how it works. Grieve, aggrieved is the same way, where uh, people become disenchanted and aggrieved. Okay, but, but what exactly is that? I don't really know. It could mean a lot of different things, right? Um, you know, maybe grievances aren't enough, but a grievance is always that thing we slap on as sort of a, a, a scenario in which we don't have a better explanation. Yeah. <laughs> Unless we don't we have a, it's not a very precise term. Yeah, and I suppose for a quantitative researcher, when you've got terms like that, it's uh, it, it can be annoying to say the least, I'd say. Like. I bet you it's annoying to you as someone who does make a little, you know, does, both, does some kind of a lot of qualitative work as well. And yeah. people say, well, yeah, well, the reason that you saw these people join is because they were just aggrieved. You know, they became radicalized in prison. Well, you know, I'm sure that both you and I have an aching desire. Like, what exactly is that? Yeah. Can anyone become radicalized? Yeah. Were radicalized before? Can you radicalize somebody? You know, and that, that's sort of, I think, of Kurt Braddock's work on this, you know, and John Horgan's work on this as well, to look at... Uh, to look at sort of this issue. I think I heard, Horgan, heard John Horgan say one time, we don't know, no one knows what radicalization is, let's stop saying the term. You know, I, I'm paraphrasing him, I'm not, I don't want to attribute that. I thought, it was, I thought it was a very prescient and wise thing to say. Yeah, and if, if listeners uh, remember back to the very first episode in this series with, uh, with Andrew Silk, he raises similar frustrations with the term radicalization. And right. it, for many people, it's been used as, well, radicalization is just the process into leading you into terrorism. So uh, he was saying, uh, and I, I have debates about this. Are you saying, well, what's the point in saying he was radicalized? It was his radicalization that led, led him into terrorism. It was, that's sort of like saying him becoming a terrorist made him become a terrorist. Like it's <laughs> it's it, tautological. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Turns out that people who are bad do bad things. You know, it's, it's kind of the deal. Well, so we, so my response to that is I don't use the term radicalization very much. I use grievance and aggrieved and yeah. became a, a culmination of grievance and construction of grievances. Yeah. But we have the same problem there. We just don't really know. I mean, because terrorism is an expression of grievance too. Yeah. Like, yeah. You can imagine it could be. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So these, these were the, the three pieces that you, that you picked. Look, your research that looks at regime type, looks at minority, minority economic discrimination, and looks at repression and types of repression as well. What's your research uh, moving forward? Where where is your research leading you now? Um, well, we're working on something. I'm working on a, a piece right now that looks at interventions and and terrorism. And um, this is a uh, unpublished work uh, that I'm working on with Juan Choi from from. Uh, University of Illinois at Chicago, and it looks at the backlash associated with foreign interventions into other countries. And so we look, look at, we have some really interesting rich data um, that um, is the, uh, is, is, was developed by um, Kissingani and Pickering, uh, the IMI data, that breaks down the different motivations and types of military interventions in other countries and sort of tries to find out, uh, and, and 
we use it to be able to try to find out if a country engages in military interventions or certain types of them, do they subsequently experience more transnational terrorist attacks? Mm -hmm. And so is this one of the costs of military interventions? And um, uh, we do find it is the case. We do find, and we have, we've had to wrestle quite a bit with this causation and endogeneity question. The states may be motivated to engage in interventions in response to a terrorist attack, like the 9-11 attacks in the United States, which resulted in an invasion of Afghanistan. You know? mm -hmm. So we, we do have some, we do a battery of tests to try to parse that out. We think we found the causal relationship runs, but certainly there's a causal relationship that runs between a country intervenes in another, in another country's politics militarily, and they experience more terrorism. The evidence we found is that it's, this is not that surprising, but that it is not the, it is not the benevolent, so-called benevolent, the humanitarian or social protective type of interventions, which mm -hmm. would be like an intervention in response to a natural disaster or an intervention to, you know, save people's lives, experiencing discrimination. These tend, we didn't find those actually to produce subsequent terrorism, but we did find the more political, strategic, high politics type interventions. So the interventions to achieve strategic advantage, interventions to um, to affect policy and regime change within countries, these were strongly associated with higher rates of subsequent terrorist attacks in the intervening country. Oh, fascinating. When, when should we expect to see this age? Well, it's in the R&R machine right now, so we'll, we'll see when that's the case. So 2025 or something like that? <laughs> that's right. Depends on the, I don't know how much of a backlog these journals have. Yeah, yeah. Well, a lot of them have a huge backlog at the moment, unfortunately. <laughs> but um, the way I finish up each each of these interviews, as our, our listeners know, is just asking you: How do you feel uh, the state of terrorism research is at the moment? That's a really, really important question, isn't it? I mean, that's a. Um, I think it's. I think it's. I think it is much, much more developed than when I began. I, I'm not saying that there's a causal relationship there. I just think yeah. that a lot more people... It's become, the Jim Piazza effect. Yeah, there's been a clear Jim Piazza effect. Now, it's despite my best efforts, I think the field has moved forward quite a bit. You know, um, it's a... Um, I have to tell you, when I go to conferences and when I review um, manuscripts and uh, see them published, and when I go to talks and, and listen... Uh, there are quite a bit of, there, there are many, many, there's a lot of excellent younger scholars coming into the field. I mean, um, you know, you have a real generational effect of highly trained people that have seen, you know, the terrorism field grow quite a bit and have thought a lot about it and have received I mean, far better training than I have in terms of how to get at these questions from a research standpoint. Um, I, I have... I, I feel like our field is really going to take off quite a bit in the next 10 to 15 years. I think that when these scholars, you know, hit their prime, they're going to be doing really groundbreaking research with, with research techniques that far surpass anything that you and I have ever done. You know, I think it's going to be better quality data and more interesting data, integration of experiments into analysis that I think are going to be really, really great, and really a real amplification of some of the groundwork that, that has been laid already. Um, I... I I don't know if this is true in your field, but in political science, I feel that um, studying terrorism has become a much, maybe a little more mainstream thing. I've always felt like I've yeah. had my work taken seriously for other political scientists, but you know, most people didn't work on terrorism. You just see it a lot more frequently, mm -hmm. and I think that that's a really healthy sign. Yeah, no, that is that is a really healthy sign, and it, and I think it is 
you you can see that across a number of different disciplines and throughout the the podcast series we've heard people talk about the influence of criminology crime sciences um kurt braddock who you've mentioned already talking about uh, your colleague in penn state talking about uh, communications coming in as well all these different disciplines outside of the traditional poli-sci international relations um focus on, on terrorism and it's it's only a healthy thing for the for the area of research it's um yeah i think there there are probably some some very good years ahead in 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 relation to this research jim it's been a pleasure talking to you it's been it's been great uh it's it's been great just to catch up even it's been it's been a while since we've had a chat um Absolutely. thank you thank you so much for for today's uh, for today's interview i'm sure our listeners will find it really informative and really uh really helpful and and get them thinking about a number of 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 different topics that were, were covered here as always, all the research that was talked about on today's podcast, uh, there are links uh, for, for each of them uh, on Jim's uh, bio on the Talking Terror website. That w- can be found at uel.ac.uk slash T-E-R-C. Information about all of the things we do here at, at Turk can be found there, as well as following us on Twitter at T-E-R-C-U-E-L. And be sure to tweet at us with the hashtag Talking Terror. So there you have it. That's our final episode of Talking Terror for 2017. I hope you've enjoyed what we've put out this year. We're going to take a break for a couple of weeks, but we will be back in the new year in 2018. First episode of next year will be my chat with uh, Professor Neil Ferguson from Liverpool Hope University. And um, there are loads more to come. We're going to be talking to John Horgan, Mia Bloom, Daniel Byman, Paul Taylor. So many more, so many more great guests uh, next year in 2018. So for those of you who are getting a break over the next few weeks, hope you enjoy it, hope you enjoy the festive period. And uh, be sure to tune back in over the next, in the next few weeks to listen to what we have ahead in 2018. If you miss us, obviously listen to our back episodes, listen to great episodes that have gone already this year. Thanks to everyone who's listened so far. Be sure to spread the word, tweet at us with the hashtag TalkingTerror. And uh, talk to you all soon. Bye.